0: The reading for this morning can be found in Colossians 3, verses 16 to 21, and the text will also appear on the screen behind me. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. You guys can go ahead and be seated. And you can go ahead and stay in Colossians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be primarily in there. <clears throat> well, good morning. My name is Jay Wheland. I am the kids director, as you can tell, because my voice is very loud and I move a lot. And so I am so honored and thankful to be here before you, to be able to preach to you about something that is just especially on my heart. Uh, Something that might be on all of your hearts this morning is that we have a team in Haiti right now that are uh, doing some excellent work building homes, and I would just ask that uh, you be praying for them, and if you want to know specific prayer requests, you can go to our Facebook page where uh, there's going to be a prayer request daily that'll come through that. So please take advantage of that. Pray for pray for our people who are not here um, with us with doing the work of Christ. Yeah, there they are, there, um, the hospital. That's actually the team from uh, last year, but there are some people from that. Well, I would uh, be a bad kids director if I didn't take this chance to just give you a little picture of what's going on in the kids' ministry over the last five months since Uh, Myself, my wife, Carolina, our two kids, James and Eleanor, uh, came here on staff. As you've probably seen, we've made some small adjustments. We've moved kids into classrooms, probably ruining your Sunday morning. (laughs) Uh, We have changed the curriculum to something called the Gospel Project. If you're not utilizing this, um, there is an app called Lifeway Families, and you can totally take advantage of that. It's got a lot of great resources for you. And uh, we have moved our teachers into a place where they are teaching really about once a month, uh, once every other month. And if you have a heart for kids or if you have a heart to give back and you're looking for a place to serve, I want to encourage you and invite you to come talk to me. I'm going to be back immediately after the service in that new seating area that we have. And I want to talk to you about what's going on in kids' ministry. I want to talk to you about how you can come beside our most vulnerable people, some of the most special people in this church building, and walk beside them to share about Jesus. It's an incredible experience for the people who actually do it, and for the kids themselves. And uh, I, I just want to encourage you to do that. Well, as you can see up on the screen, we have been talking about this word dwell, and what does that mean And we've been using the book of Acts to go through it, and we've talked about the Holy Spirit dwelling within the early church and within us, and we're going to do the same thing today, except we're going to press pause on the book of Acts, and we're going to go into Colossians. And I'm really excited to be speaking on this, which sounds counterintuitive, because when you hear that, it's just maybe you had this reaction to that scripture, you went, oh no, not that one. Authority in the new age. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Why are we talking about authority in the new age? I want to encourage you to take off maybe your, your preconceived notions, maybe your perceptions about what this scripture has been said before, and try to hear God's word uh, talk to you. And this is a family service, but this is not specifically a message just for families. This is a message for singles, This is a message for single parents. This is a message for empty nesters. This is a message for all of God's family to come beside. It's kind of like, uh, you know, in a basketball game, one of my favorite things is when they call a timeout. You're learning a lot about me right now. And what you always see without fail is you've got the coach who's down there and he's telling the players what the play is and you've got like this small circle and he's talking directly to them and then you've got like this outside circle of guys just kind of listening in kind of watching you always tell the guys who are like they're gonna jump into the game soon because they're actually listening and then there's always like that 12th guy on the bench that makes like no money you know just $500,000 for that game And he's just kind of standing there like this, and it's always like, that guy's never playing ever. I want this message to kind of operate in that way where I'm speaking directly to families, but also I want you guys to listen in if you're not necessarily what you consider to be a part of that. So that's my hope for this morning. I really believe that this is scripture that breathes life into our communities, into our families. Uh, But before we do that, I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your word. I pray that you go before us, Jesus, and that my words, as weak and as as self-important as they can be, would fall away, and that your words would be lifted up. Lord Jesus, we know that you are the giver of life. We know that you breathe life through your word, and I pray that this space would be filled with that. I pray these things in your precious name. Amen. So, like I said, we're in the book of Colossians, and I'm going to be giving you a little bit of context so that we can start to understand this sometimes difficult passage of text. So, Colossians was a small church, it was in the city of Coloss, and it was a, it was a new church. It was about 100 miles outside of Ephesus, and you, we really don't know that much about Coloss because there was a natural disaster that wiped it out along with Laodicea. And what we do know about Colossus is it was a thriving uh, city in terms of its, uh, its marketplace. But it was actually on the decline when the church actually started. Other uh, cities nearby, it started to rise in power. And so Paul is writing to the Colossians from prison, and he never planted that church. He was it, It's probably thought of that while he was there in, in Ephesus planting that church because of its relative closeness, that someone from Ephesus, uh, Ephesus, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, (laughs) From Ephesus, you'll understand why I'm flipping out on this in just a second. Uh, While he was there, there was a man named named Ephesus, 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 gosh almighty, Ephesus. And he went and planted that church. And so it's a small little church. But there was some confusion that was starting to happen for these new believers. And so Ephesus is coming to Paul in prison to kind of get his wisdom within. it. And we can break these two problems down into two categories. A religious issue of confusion and then a social issue of confusion. So let's start with religious. In Kolos, there was, like I said, it was a relatively successful place. So there were Jewish temples... And then there were temples to the more polytheistic uh, Roman religions. And so uh, there was a lot of religious thought happening within Coloss. And so either Jews or Jewish Christians were starting to bring in this idea to this new church that actually you need to submit to the law. You need to get circumcised. And because this is a church majority-wise was uh, Gentiles, they started to be a little confused about which way do we go. And this is a common problem. We see it in Acts. We see it in Galatians. And so there was some confusion about what does it look like to confidently obey and live a Christian lifestyle. And then on the other segment, you've got these, this polytheistic religion, which it talks a little bit about like angelic worship and spiritual things. And so again, to a new Christian, you're hearing those things, and you're like, that kind of sounds a little bit like what I'm hearing in church, so maybe my lifestyle needs to take on certain aspects of that. So this is the tension, or part of the tension, that uh, these Colossians are living in. And so Paul's writing to clarify what's going on here, and he writes to clarify with these three things in mind. Who is Christ? What did he do, and what does that mean for all of us? And throughout these writings, he is going to lay before the Colossians, and then to us, the authority that Jesus has in commanding our lives like this. And so, you can go throughout the entire book of Colossians, and I'm not going to summarize everything within it, although it is a deeply beautiful book. I would encourage you to take some time this week to read through it. But I'm going to take the kind of the high points. We start in Colossians 1, and everyone might have heard this. It's Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and it's this this beautiful hymn, this poem that Paul writes to talk about who Jesus is. We know this phrasing. It comes in uh, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Paul's putting it before you, and he's putting it before the Colossians. Like, this is who Jesus is. He is exactly God. All things were created through him and for him and by him. It's a beautiful picture on who Christ is. Like, that is like high, high level. We move in throughout... Uh, The book into chapter 2, and Paul starts to identify what he does. And if you look at uh, verses, uh, chapter 2, verses uh, 12 through 14, you see this uh, beautiful phrase of having been buried with him, meaning all of us in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. For you Christ followers in the room, that should be just music to your ears. Jesus, the creator of the universe, made flesh. And then he's taking this sinful thing, this chasm between us, And he's not just alleviating it with a wave of his hand. He's taking nails and he's nailing it to a cross. That should be filling us with joy right now. That's incredible. And Paul is writing again about what he did. So what does that mean for us? We start to get there when we're in chapter three. Paul uses this kind of analogy of putting on the new self. You probably see it in like one of your subject headings. And he talks about how before you knew Christ, you were all of these things. You were wicked. You were broken. There were things wrong about you. Nothing was flourishing. Nothing was living and giving new life. That was your old self. And then Christ nailed that on a cross, and he moved you into this new place. Eugene Peterson, the writer of the message, the translation of the message, I love the way that he put it. He says that Christ laid out a wardrobe for you, and you were to put on his clothes. His clothes that will never tarnish, never go bad. Again, all of this is great. Jesus, creator of the universe. He reconciled us to God. He met us in that, that central desire place. You were an old person. Now you're a new person. No cosmetic surgery needed. This is amazing, powerful, life-giving stuff. And I think that we get so excited by that. And then we get to 318, and it's like wives submit, and everybody's just like, oh, I'm going to skip that. I don't really want to know commands or rules or things like that. That's uncomfortable I talked about there are these two tensions that were a place in the church in Kolos. the next one is social your kids director is about to talk about Aristotle get ready <laughs> Aristotle wrote this uh, this collection of thoughts called the politics and in it he, he talks about the husband the father's role within the household and To Aristotle and to pretty much every man, it was clear that he was the only one that could bring stability to instability. And so he assumed this headhold or this this headship, this powerful place of authority within the household. And so everyone else was subjugated to his decision-making. So that is what the picture of the household that Paul is writing into Within Colossus, you had wives or uh, women that were subjugated in a, in a spectrum, really. The, the very best that you could hope for is almost like an equal standing in terms of running a business or, um, you know, running the inside of the household. And then you move down the spectrum, and then you were relegated only to those places. And then in some cases, you're relegated as a wife and a woman uh, to almost like a slave, it's a really corrupt way that the household was run, and it's even worse for children. Children were uh, were basically property. They could be sold into slavery. They could be publicly beaten by uh, the father, or he could have people go and do his dirty work, or even things more worse. Children, especially as they were younger, were a basically a tool for the father to do his will and often if we all know how man's heart is it went in really corrupted awful directions this is i'm painting a bleak picture here and it's not that every household in the roman empire was this awful broken slave owning group and treated family in that way but it had the potential to because of the way the household was constructed, that's what Paul is writing in to Colossian or to the Colossian church. Husbands <clears throat> were uh, raised to a place really of royal authority, and that everyone else was subjected to them, so you have a king in every household in North Dallas. My wondering as we're kind of getting closer to where we're going to land, is this who is that? that ruler within our own households. It is so easy to see and recognize even within um, my household that that central place, it may not be me, but it might be this idea of success. It might be materialism, getting things. It might be this endless pursuit of pleasure that rules over the household. Even in so many houses in this North Dallas area, Children have become the head authority within everything that the family does, works around. And I'm not talking about in a good, loving way. I'm talking about that they are scheduled to death. They are going to every sports league they can get to, they are doing every single function that they can be involved in. It's a parade that leads not to life, but to death. That's what I see. So let's actually jump in to Colossians 3.16 through 21. You can go ahead and throw it up on the screen. So I have to say up front, these verses um, have been absolutely taken out of context and abused in really horrible ways for centuries, especially when we come to that second part. Go ahead and go to the next slide where we're going to sit right here and talk about wives submit to your husbands. That's just been an abusive, um, con- like a bad reading of it. And just so you know, if you were to go uh, forward into verse 22, we start to identify relationships between slaves and masters. I'm not avoiding that because it's a tricky subject. It just doesn't really fall within the context of what Um, our message is really about. If you want to talk to me more about that, um, find me afterwards. I'd love to tell you about it. But this has just been an abusive, hurtful thing for a lot of uh, people. And this is where our Bibles actually, the way that they're broken out and segmented, actually kind of hurts us. Because we think that this household code that is laid out in Colossians 3.18 starts in verse 18, wives submit. But just like I couldn't just immediately go there with you all, you can't immediately start there within the household code. You have to actually go back to verse 17, which I just made a mic in our tech booth go from one to another. If you look at verse 17 in your, in your Bibles right there, you'll see this really powerful beginning to the household code. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That, there are two huge parts to the household code that we often ignore. The first one is this, do everything in the name. You were expected that everything that you were doing is being uh, done in the name of Jesus. He's focusing in, Paul is, on building this framework for households and for how we're supposed to live within the context of those households. But We're doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus. The, The Aristotle... View The Roman Empire's view of the household placed the husband, the father, in that central place, and what Paul is doing is he's radically changing that. He's taking it and flipping it directly on its head and moving the husband-father out of that position of power, out of that place of prominence, and he's putting him down on a different level because Jesus is Lord, and he moves him into that place of authority. Jesus is the frame in which all responsibilities that Paul will write comes from. So let's go in. Wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Submit, that word in the Greek, does not, it does mean that you are um, coming under an authority. But, the way that that authority, who is in that authority place is the most important thing to consider. If we believe that Paul is using Jesus as the framework for this household code, then that logic has to flow through and that all the responsibilities that he is giving out to these Christian households are in a Christ-like way. So how did Jesus submit? Where do we get that picture? You can stay where you're at, but I'm going to go to the Gospel of John. And in John chapter 6, verses 38 through 40, we see where Jesus submits. He says this, Jesus says this, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on that last day. Jesus made his desires his father's. He joined in those desires he made them his own to where they were so wrapped into his DNA that you could not separate them and thank God that Jesus's desires were to reconcile us to him it is a good good amazing powerful thing that we need to dwell upon Jesus made his desires his father's desires so when Paul is writing, wives submit only. Um, wives submit to your husbands. He's saying you need to submit to only your husbands, as it aligns with the Lord. We're going to be talking a little bit about what that means in terms of a husband's lordship. But I, I almost made the mistake of doing this. It is not this. It is a radical changing of responsibilities within a household, with Jesus staying in the Lord's position. This Roman social code said one thing. It said, wives, put your husbands first. But what Paul is saying when he says, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, he's saying not put your husband first, but put Christ first. It's a heavy thing. Husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. You might be thinking like, Okay, we got off easy. Just love my wife. Like, I love my wife. She's amazing. She's beautiful. I still can picture her walking down the aisle. Why wouldn't I love my wife like that? Husbands, love your wife. So the Roman code was concerned. You know, it's interesting. As you look at the, um, Aristotle's writings and other household codes, they are primarily uh, focused in on the rights of the husband and father. It talks about what his rights are, what he gets, what he can do. And the way that Paul is flipping this on its head is that he's looking and he's saying, your responsibilities are these things. Husbands are to love their wives and not be harsh with them. Again, taking this Christ modeling, this framework, that we're working in, we need to see how did Jesus love? If you go again to the Gospel of John 15 this time, you see this. Jesus says to his disciples in the garden, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. It's a sacrificial love. It's a self-sacrificial love that Jesus is talking about. And so when Jesus Or when Paul is saying to husbands, love your wives, he's not talking about it in a romantic way. He's saying you need to be doing this in a self-sacrificial way. It is putting away your desires. It's putting away the things that you think will bring you the most pleasure. And it's putting your wife ahead of you. You're to cherish your wife. In Genesis, it talks about when husband and wife to come together, they are made into one flesh. Paul is saying you need to love your own flesh. You need to cherish it. You need to place your wife above those things that maybe you want, you selfishly want. Love your wives, cherish them, and place their needs. What kind of needs am I talking about? I'm talking about those real needs. I'm talking about those deeply heartfelt things. I'm not talking about just being successful and working hard and giving a roof and food on the table, which is absolutely important. I'm talking about meeting your wife in the needs that she has, listening, responding, praying for her, caring for her walk with Jesus. Those are the deeper held needs that a husband is to care for his wife for harsh, that husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. He's not saying don't be ever angry. You're not allowed to be angry with your wives. That word harsh is a really interesting one. It's really not used in the New Testament except two other times, which is in Revelation, and it's really talking about like the taste of something. It's a harsh taste. And so that that harsh taste is really associated with bitter. And if we move into um, another way of saying bitter bitterness we see a wealth of things that is husbands and for me personally give me a lot of pause bitterness is used in these areas in acts 8:23 paul writes or excuse me luke writes that there is a gall of bitterness and is linked to the bond of iniquity in Romans, he ties bitterness to cursing. Um, bitterness is a curse for those who do not love God and fear God. In Ephesians, bitterness tops the list of vices that symbolize every form of malice. In Hebrews, a showing a lack of grace is understood in terms of bitterness. I think the best place that we can see it is in the, uh, the letter of James Verse uh, chapter 3, verse 14. James says, But if you have bitter jealousy, show, uh, show his word, excuse me. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This, is, this goes in a whole new context. Paul is saying, You cannot be bitter. You cannot live a life because what we see, one commentary that I read put it this way. If husbands are the head of the household, if they are a way to lead in the decision-making, that they are reflecting Christ in his service. And so he's giving out this love. And so if husbands are bitter, what we see is that it plays out time and time again that that's a rejection of the love that God gives so freely. If you're bitter with your wife, if you have let those things be stored up in your heart, then it is an absolute rejection of the love that God lives out and pours out to you so freely. The Roman social code, this Aristotle view, said, husbands, maintain the order in the house. Rule, govern, make sure everything is stable. You can do this. But Paul flips that on its head and says, husbands, Serve the needs of your wife with joy. So, we've talked about spouses, talked about husbands and wives, but children are actually included in this too. Children, obey your parents in everything. I swear I thought I was going to hear a lot of amens. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. We've talked about husbands and wives now and parents, so remember this key aspect to it. Um, children, obey your parents, but in everything... Uh, ch- children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. We tend to forget these kind of secondary spots within what is being asked. So again, we have to ask our question, how did Jesus obey? And we look at Philippians two, eighteen. And we see. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So my message real quick to the younger kids is this. The burden is really on your parents. You need to hear that your parents have an incredible burden placed on them. And this burden is that they need to be instructing and providing opportunities for you to learn about Jesus, for you to know what pleases the Lord. Parents, you must be actively involved in the spiritual formation of your children. Parents, especially fathers, need to be active in that. Because, kids, God has placed your parents in a role of authority, and you're to obey that. But likewise, your parents have got to paint a picture so that you know what it looks like to obey. As you're seeing throughout these household code, there's a continual folding in that occurs. Do not provoke Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Fathers in the Greek that we're talking about, he, he does say fathers, but it's something that's been used multiple times to where it can apply to parents also. So, but he leaves it as fathers, most commentaries believe, because fathers have such a central role within the household. Do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. The Greek, when we say provoke, it means to make resentful or make someone bitter. If you're a husband and a father in this room, there's some heavy stuff happening, and we all know it. I've been a father for not even two years yet. I am a baby father, and I feel that burden and that understanding of what my role is with my kids and with my spouse. I can run away from it as much as I want, but that, that burden, that responsibility still sits there with us. What's interesting is that in the time, uh, it was a, Drew, a Jewish tradition that, parent, that children were to obey their parents so that they wouldn't cause their parents to provoke. But, but again, Paul And this continual pattern of subverting and putting it on its head challenges that actually its parents don't cause your children to provoke you so that they do not become discouraged or give up. Paul wrote, or in this this code that families are constantly living in within Kolos and throughout the empire said, children, you are subject to the rule of your father and do not cause him problems. But Paul is writing to children to obey your parents who are joyfully submitting and lovingly serving one another because this pleases the Lord. Parents, love your children and love them so they can flourish with strong character. Paul's letter to the Colossians is very local. We know that he is absolutely speaking into the needs and the issues that are hitting that congregation. But it's also universal. He's talking to us. We know that we have these responsibilities, these burdens within a Christian household. And Paul is making it abundantly clear that who is over that household. Now, this is—it would be a huge mistake to take this household code as the author, um, as a comprehensive discussion about family relationships. There's so much more that Paul writes about throughout the New Testament about what the roles of families are, what it means, the theology that's behind that. I would encourage you and challenge you to go and seek those out. The best place to start is in Ephesians chapter 5, towards the end, all the way through into chapter 6. Paul writes a little bit more um, comprehensively about what that means. But in modern times, as we here are in Frisco, Texas, we have a challenge of living out what it means to live as Christ followers. We, need, we have that challenge both in the home and outside it. And it can be confusing and challenging. But we see with a clearness in Paul's letter to the Colossians that we can live in certainty and grace when Christ is recognized as the Lord of our hearts, but also within our households. So husbands, here's my challenge to you. What does that mean in this context? What does it mean for walking out these doors with your spouse? It means, husbands, what are you doing? Here are some things, some encouragements. Are you praying for your wife? We had a a really amazing moment in our marriage uh, that I can say amazing now, but in the moment, wasn't so great. I'm a doer. I'm I'm someone who's like constantly fiddling around, as you can see, as I've definitely hit my step goal for the morning as I've walked around the stage. I'm always looking to do things for my wife. I just think that she's incredible. And I'm always looking to do things. And that might sound great to some of you, but it's actually kind of a burden because it's a bit much. I'm always looking to do things. And she finally looked at me one morning and she said, will you just stop thinking about what you can do for me and start thinking about the things that I need? It's a really powerful, uh, hurtful is the wrong word, but direct and loving thing that really got to me. Why do I always look to do things for Carolina? Because I'm selfish, because I want to be able to look at a list and say, like, this is all that I did for you today, and this is all I did for uh, the church today while I was working, And um, I actually used my blinker on my car, so I did a lot for the community uh, as I was turning into another lane. Can't you just see this so maybe you can give me a little bit of credit or in my worst moments, can you just get off my back? Am I knowing my wife's needs? Am I making, here's here's a huge key one for husbands because men, by and large, we have a hard time with this. Are we making ourselves vulnerable to the ways that the Lord might be leading us? Are we letting our wives know? Are we laying out in a humble way? I'm really sensing that the Lord is leading our family in this. What do you think about that? Does your wife know? How can your wife joyfully submit in a Christ-like way to you? if she doesn't even know where you're leading, maybe the thinking behind it and the reasons behind it. So too, wives, are you praying for your husbands? Are you actively participating in the leadership of the spiritual formation of your household? Are you giving direct but loving feedback You might know this, but let me speak as a husband real quick. Your words have more importance than you could ever know. I mean that from, hey, your hair is what's going on, to there's a lot of hair coming out of your ears I'm not so sure about, to, hey, we haven't prayed together as a family in the last couple of days. Can you lead in that? If we're not putting our wives forward and wives, if you're not putting your husbands forward in your prayer in your prayer lives, if your picture of that isn't is just that's his job, this is mine then it just creates this friction within you within your your uh, your homes. Parents, are you developing the spiritual formation of children in your home Sunday mornings we're doing the best that we can but we look at as a way within your kids, within your classrooms, as we are a part of the, what you are leading the charge in. Grab onto this. It won't go perfectly, but get involved. Start praying with your kids. Start to spiritually form them so that they can know and obey their heavenly father because he says children here, and we think the little ones, but he's saying it to all of us. We all are children. We all have parents that we've got to obey. How are you modeling that for your kids? Kids, are you trusting and obeying your parents? It says, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Are you doing it half-heartedly? Teenagers, are you doing it half-heartedly? Are you doing it begrudgingly, or are you keeping central in your heart that you trust your parents because they are providing for you, and they are joyfully submitting, and they are servantly leading within the house? I want to close with this, and I love that we're coming together as a family to go into a time of communion. It's a fitting way to end, I think, because as Paul encouraged us to think about the authority that Jesus has, he is central in our worship, and he is central within this time. Andrew's going to come up, and he's going to give us a a brief moment to pause and reflect so music can kind of guide you and encourage you. But I want to give you a moment to recenter your hearts, to place Jesus into that place of authority, and to ask him how he's leading you in the roles and responsibilities that he's laid out for you.